Book Three, Chapter Two of The Black Star Passes by John Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. A great number of scientists and military men were already gathered about the headquarters ship. As Arcot's party arrived, they learned that each of the wrecks was being assigned to one group. They learned further that because of their scientific importance, they were to go to the nearly perfect ship lying off to the west. Two Air Force patrolmen were to accompany them. "'Lieutenant Wright and Lieutenant Greer will go with you,' said the Colonel. "'In the event of trouble from possible, though unlikely, survivors, they may be able to help. "'Is there anything further we can do? "'These men are armed with standard sidearms, aren't they?' Arcot asked. "'I think we'll all be better off if I arm them with some of the new direct-array pistols. "'I have several in my boat. "'It'll be all right, I suppose?' "'Certainly, Dr. Arcot. They are under your command.' The party increased to five now, returned to the ship, where Arcot showed the men the details of the ray pistols and how to use them. The control for the direction of operation was rather intricate in these early models, and required considerable explanation. The theoretical range of even these small hand weapons was infinity in space, but in the atmosphere the energy was rather rapidly absorbed by the ionization of the air, and the dispersion of the beam made it ineffective in space over a range of more than thirty-five miles. Again, entering the little molecular motion car, they went at once to the great hull of the fallen ship. They inspected it cautiously from overhead before going too close, for the dreadnought obviously had landed without the terrific concussion the others had experienced, and there was a possibility that some of the crew had survived the crash. The entire stern of the huge vessel had been torn off, and evidently the ship was unable to rise but there were lights glowing through the portholes on the side, indicating that power had not failed completely. "'I think we'd better treat that monster with respect,' remarked Wade, looking down at the lighted windows. "'They have power, and the hull is scarcely dented except where the stern was caught by a beam. It's lucky we had those ray projector ships. They've been in service only about four months, haven't they, Lieutenant?' "'Just about that, sir,' the air patrolman replied. They hadn't gotten the hand weapons out in sufficient quantities to be issued to us yet. Morey scowled at the invader. I don't like this at all. I wonder why they didn't greet us with some of their beams, he said in worried tones. It did seem that there should be some of the rays in action now. They were less than a mile from the fallen giant and moving rather slowly. I've been puzzled about that myself, commented Arcot and I've come to the conclusion that either the ray projectors are fed by a separate system of power distribution which has been destroyed, or that the creatures from space are all dead. They were to learn later, in their exploration of the ship, that the invaders' ray projectors were fed from a separate generator, which produced a special form of alternating current wave for them. This generator had been damaged beyond use. The little machine was well toward the stern of the giant now, and they lowered it till it was on a level with the torn metal. It was plain that the ship had been subjected to some terrific tension. The great girders were stretched and broken, and the huge ribs were bent and twisted. The central tube, which ran the length of the ship, had been drawn down to about three-quarters of its original diameter, making it necessary for them to use the ray to enter. In moments their speedster glided into the dark tunnel. The searchlight reaching ahead filled the metal tunnel with a myriad of deceptive reflections. The tube was lighted up far ahead of them, and seemed empty. Cautiously they advanced, with Arcot at the controls. "'Wade! Morey! 
"'Where will we stop first? he asked. "'The engines? They'll probably be of prime importance. We know their location. What do you say?' "'I agree,' replied Wade, and Morey nodded his approval. They ran their craft down the long tube till they reached the door they knew must be the engine room landing, and stepped out, each wearing an altitude suit. This ship had landed level, and progress would be much easier than in the other one. They waited a moment before opening the door to the engine room, for this led into a narrow corridor where only one could pass. Caution was definitely in order. The air patrolman insisted on leading the way. They had been sent along for the express purpose of protecting the scientist, and it was their duty to lead. After a brief argument, Arcot agreed. The two officers stepped to the door, and standing off to one side, tore it open with a ray from their pistols. It fell with a clatter to the rounded metal floor of the tube, and lay there vibrating noisily, but no rays of death lanced out from beyond it. Cautiously they peered around the corner of the long corridor, then seeing nothing, entered. Wade came next, then Arcot, followed by Morey. The corridor was approximately thirty feet long, opening into the great engine room. Already the men could hear the smooth hum of the powerful engines, and could see the rounded backs of vast mechanisms. But there was no sign of life, human or otherwise. They halted finally at the threshold of the engine room. "'Well,' Arcot said softly, "'we haven't seen anyone so far, and I hope no one has seen us. The invaders may be behind one of those big engines quite unaware of us. If they're there, and they see us, they'll be ready to fight.' Now remember, those weapons you have will tear loose anything they hit. So take it easy. You know something about the power of those engines, so don't put them out of commission and have them splash us all over the landscape. But look out for the crew and get them if they try to get you. Cautiously but quickly they stepped out into the great room, forming a rough half-circle, pistols ready for action. Walked forward stealthily, glancing about them, and simultaneously the enemies caught sight of each other. There were six of the invaders, each about seven feet tall and surprisingly humanoid. They somewhat resembled Venerians, but they weren't Venerians, for their skin had a strange gray-white, suggesting raw dough. It seemed to Arcot that these strange, pale creatures were advancing at a slow walk, and that he stood still watching them as they slowly raised strange hand weapons. He seemed to notice every detail, their short, tight-fitting suits of some elastic material that didn't hamper their movements, and their strange flesh, which just seemed to escape being transparent. Their eyes were strangely large, and the black spot of the pupil in their white corneas created an unnatural effect. Then abruptly their weapons came up, and Arcot responded with a sudden flick of his ray, as he flung himself to one side. Simultaneously, his four companions let their beams fly towards the invaders. They glowed strangely red here, but they were still effective. The six beams were suddenly gone, but not before they had released their own beams. And they had taken toll. Lieutenant Wright lay motionless upon the floor. The terrestrians scarcely had a chance to notice this, for immediately there was a terrific rending crash, and clean daylight came pouring through a wide opening in the wall of the ship. Five rays had not stopped on contact with the enemy, but had touched the wall behind them. An irregular opening now gaped in the smooth metal. Suddenly there came a second jarring thud, a dull explosion. Then a great sheet of flame filled the hole, 
a wall of ruddy flame swept rapidly in. Arcot swung up his ray pistol, pointing it at the mass of flaming gas. A mighty column of air came through the narrow corridor from the tube, rushing toward the outside and taking the flame with it. A roaring mass of gas hoovered outside the ship. Lieutenant, said Arcot swiftly, turn your ray on that hole and keep it there, blowing that flame outside with it. You'll find you can't put the fire out, but if you keep it outside the ship, I believe we'll be reasonably safe. The patrolman obeyed instantly, relieving Arcot. Wade and Morey were already bending over the fallen man. I'm afraid there's nothing we can do for him, the latter said grimly, and every moment here is dangerous. Let's continue our investigation and carry him back to the ship when we leave. Arcot nodded silently. Solemnly they turned away from the motionless figure on the floor and set out on their investigation. Arcot, began Morey after a moment, why is that gas burning like that? Can't we put it out? Let's get through with this job first, replied Arcot somewhat tersely. The discussion comes after. The bodies of the invaders were gone, so that they could not examine them now. That was a matter for the doctors and biologists anyway. The engines were their main interest, huge things which overshadowed everything about them. It must have been the concealment afforded by the engines that permitted three of the enemy to get so close. The only warning the terrestrians had was a faint pink haze as they stepped around the corner of an engine, and a sudden feeling of faintness swept over them. They leaped back, out of sight, peering around the corner with nerves and muscles tensed. There was no sign of movement. As they watched, they saw a pallid hand reaching out with a ray gun, and Wade swiftly pointed his own weapon. There came a sudden crash of metal, a groan and quiet. Two other aliens leaped from behind the great engine just as the terrestrians dodged further back. As swiftly, they too found concealment. Arcot swung his ray gun up and was about to pull the trigger that would send a huge engine toppling over upon them when he saw that it was running. He thought of the unknown energies in the machine, the potential destruction, and he shook his head. Cautiously, he looked around the edge of the towering mass, waiting. His beam flashed out and there was a snapping sound as the ray caught a reaching hand and hurled its owner against a mighty transformer of some sort. For an instant the huge mass tottered, then was still. In the low concentration of power that Arcot had used, only a small portion had been touched, and the molecules of this portion had not been enough to tip over its tremendous weight. Only one enemy remained, and Arcot learned swiftly that he was still in action. For before he could dodge back there came that now familiar pink haziness. It touched Arcot's hand, outstretched as it had been when he fired, and a sudden numbness came over it. His pistol hand seemed to lose all feeling of warmth or cold. It was there. He could still feel the weapon's deadened weight. Reflex action hurled him back, his hand out of range of the ray. In seconds the feeling began to return, and in less than ten his hand was normal again. He turned to the others with a wry grin. Whew, that was a narrow squeak. I must say, their ray is a gentlemanly sort of thing. It either kills you or doesn't injure you at all. There it goes again. A shaft of pink radiance touched the end of the engine, just grazing it, evidently absorbed by its mass. Pinning us down, Wade grated. They certainly couldn't step out into the open space, but they couldn't stay where they were indefinitely either. Reinforcements might arrive. Look, 
Wade pointed with his pistol. He's under that big metal bar, up there in the roof. See it? I'll pull it down. He may get nervous and come into sight. Swiftly Arcot sprang forward and caught his arm. Lord, don't do that, Wade. There's too much stuff here that we don't know anything about. Too much chance of your smashing us with him. I'm going to try to get around to the other side of this machine and see what I can do, while you fellows keep him occupied. Arcot disappeared around the black humming giant. Interminably, the others waited for something to happen. Then suddenly, the beam that had been playing at irregular intervals across the end of the machine swung quickly to the other side, and simultaneously another ray seemed to leap from the machine itself. They met and crossed. There came a momentary crashing arc, then both went dead, as the apparatus that generated them blew out under terrific overload. The invader evidently carried a spare, for the watchers saw him dart from concealment, clawing at his pocket pouch. They turned their rays on him, and just as his projector ray came free, a ray hurled him violently to the left. He crashed into a huge motor, and the result was not nice. The projector had been jerked from his hand and lay off to the side. Arcot ran to it and picked it up just as they heard the lieutenant call an alarmed inquiry. "'I think we're okay now.' Arcot answered. I hope there's no more, but by all means stay where you are and use as little power as possible in blowing that flame outside. It uses up the atmosphere of the ship, and though we don't need it, I think we better take things easy. Call us if anything looks odd to you. For several minutes the three scientists looked about them in awestruck wonder. They were the first men of Earth to see the driving equipment of one of the tremendous Caxorian planes, and they felt tiny beside its great bulk. But now, as they examined this engine room, they realized that even the huge plane shrank into insignificance beside this interstellar cruiser. All about them loomed the great rounded backs of giant electric motor generators of some sort. Across the roof ran a network of gigantic metal bars, apparently conductors, but so large they suggested heavy structural members. The machines they ran into loomed fully thirty feet into the air. They were longer than cylinders. Thirty feet in diameter, and there was a group of four main machines fully a hundred twenty feet long. There were many smaller mechanisms, yet these smaller ones could easily have constituted a complete power supply for the average city. Along each wall ran a bank of transformers cast in the same heroic mold. These seemed connected with the smaller machines, there being four conductors leading into each of the minor units two intake and two, apparently, output leads, suggesting rotary converters. The multiple units and the various types of sizes of transformers made it obvious that many different frequencies were needed. Some of the transformers had their air cores and led to machines surrounded with a silvery-white metal instead of the usual iron. These apparently were generating current at an extremely high frequency. Well, Morey commented, they ought to have power enough. But do you notice that those four main units have their leads radiating in different directions? The one on the left there seems to lead to that big power board at the front. Or better bow. I think it would be worth investigating. Arcot nodded. I had the same idea. You notice that two of the main power units are still working, but that those other two have stopped? Probably the two dead ones have something to do with the motion of the ship. But there's one point, I think, is even of greater interest. All the machines we have seen, all the conspicuous ones, are secondary power sources. 
There are no primary sources visible. Notice that those two main conduits lead over to the right, and toward the bow. Let's check where they go to. As they talked, they followed the huge conductors back to their point of convergence. Suddenly, they rounded one of the huge main power units and saw before them, at the center of square formed by these machines, a low platform of transparent light metal. At the exact center of this platform, which was twenty feet in diameter, there was a table, about seven feet across, and raised about five feet above the level of the platform on stout, light metal legs. On the table were two huge cubes of solid silver, and into these cubes ran all of the conductors they had seen. In the space of about six inches left between the blocks of metal, there was a small box constructed of some strange new material. It was the most perfect reflecting surface that any of the men had ever imagined. Indeed, it was so perfect a reflector that they were unable to see it, but could detect its presence only by the mirror images, and the fact that it blotted out objects behind it. Now they noticed that through the huge blocks of metal there were two small holes, and two thin wires of this same reflecting material led into these holes. The wires led directly up to the roof, and suspended on a three-foot hangers of light metal, continued toward the bow. Could this be the source of power for the entire ship? It seemed impossible. Yet there were many other seeming impossible things here, among them that strangely reflecting matter. There was a low railing about the central platform, apparently intended to keep observers at a safe distance, so they decided against any more detailed investigation. As they were about to discuss their unusual find, the lieutenant called that he heard sounds behind him. At once the three ran rapidly towards the narrow corridor that had given them entrance. The flaming gas was still shooting through the hole in the wall of the ship, and the rush of air through the corridor made it difficult to hear any sounds there, and exceedingly difficult to walk. "'Turn on more power, lieutenant, and see if we can't draw out the enemy,' suggested Arcot while they braced themselves around the tube exit. As the patrolman increased the power of his beam, the moan of the air through the corridor increased suddenly into a terrific roar, and a cyclonic gale swept through. But none of the invaders were drawn out. After the lieutenant had shut off the blast from his pistol at Arcot's signal, the latter said, "'I don't think anything else than a war tank could stand that pressure.' It's probable that we'll be attacked if we stay here much longer, though, and we may not be able to get out at all. I think, Lieutenant, I'll ask you to stay here while we go out and get the ship ready to leave. He paused, grinning. Be sure to keep that flame outside. You'll be in the position of Hercules after Atlas left him holding the skies on his shoulders. You can't shut the ray off for long or we'll have a first-rate explosion. We'll signal when we're ready by firing a revolver, and you can make it to the ship as fast as you can travel." Arcot's expression became solemn. "'We'll have to carry Wright back to the ship. He was a brave man, and he certainly deserves burial in the soil of his own world. And, Maury, we'll have to look up his family. Your father's company will have to take care of them if they need help.' Slowly the men forced their way back toward their ship, fighting against the roaring column of air, their burden hindering them somewhat but at last they reached the open tunnel. Even here the air was in violent motion. They got into their boat as quickly as possible and set the controls for reverse flight. Then Wade fired the signal shot. 
In moments they saw Lieutenant Greer bucking against the current of air, continuing under its own momentum. By the time he was in the ship, an ominous calm had fallen. Swiftly they sped down the corridor, and had almost reached the open air when suddenly there was a dull rumble behind them, and they were caught on a wave of pressure that hurled them along at terrific speed. In a flash they spread into the open air. The great tunnel with its thick walls and flared opening acting like a gigantic blunderbuss, with the ship as its bullet. Arcot made no attempt to slow down the little craft, but pressed his foot heavily on the vertical accelerator. The ship rocketed up with terrific speed, and the acceleration pinned the men down to their seats with tripled weight. Anxiously they watched the huge invader as they sped away from it. At Arcot's direction, Morey signaled the other groups of scientists to get out of danger with all speed, warning of the impending blow-up. As the moment sped by, the tension mounted. Arcot stared fixedly into the screen before him, keeping the giant spaceship in focus. As they sped mile upon miles away from it, he began to relax a bit. Not a word was spoken as they watched and waited. Actually, very little time passed before the explosion but to the watchers the seconds dragged endlessly. Then, at twenty-seven miles, the screen flared into a sheet of blinding white radiance. There was a timeless instant, then a tremendous wave of sound, a roaring, stunning concussion smote the ship, shaking it with unrestrained fury, to cease as abruptly as it came. Immediately they realized the reason. They were rushing away from the explosion faster than the sound made, hence could not hear it. After the first intolerable flash, details became visible. The great ship seemed to leap into countless tremendous fragments, each rushing away from the point of the blow-up. They did not go far, for the force was not sustained long enough, nor was it great enough to overcome the inertia of so vast a mass for more than moments. Huge masses rained to earth, to bury themselves in the soil. There came a momentary lull, then suddenly, from the mass which evidently held the wrecked engine room, there shot out a beam of intense white light that swept around in a wide, erratic arc. Whatever it touched fused instantly into a brilliantly glowing mass of liquid incandescence. The field itself, fragments of the wreckage, fused and mingled under its fury. The beam began to swing faster and faster as the support that was holding it melted. Then abruptly it turned upon itself. There came a sudden blast of brilliance to rival that of the sun, and the entire region became a molten lake. Eyes steaming, temporarily blinded, the men turned away from the screen. That, said Arcot ruefully, is that. It seems that our visitors don't want to leave any of their secrets lying around for us to investigate. I have an idea that all the other wrecks will go like this one did, he scowled. You know, we really didn't learn much. Guess we'd better call the headquarters ship and ask for further instructions. Will you attend to it, Lieutenant Greer? End of chapter 2 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com